TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt, and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft, and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? To, will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is psychologist Susan David, an expert on emotional agility. Her popular TED Talk and best-selling book on the subject offer poignant insights and practical tools for getting better at managing our moods and feelings. Susan grew up in South Africa, teaches at Harvard Medical School, co-founded the Institute of Coaching, and regularly shares ideas that make me stop and think, and rethink, about emotions. Hey, Susan. Hi, Adam. So excited to be here today. Are you excited, or are you just saying that because you're an expert in emotional agility? <laughs> I'm genuinely excited, a little bit fearful, a feeling of generosity, various things going on for me. I wonder what you're afraid of. Well, I think that there's always the challenge when one is bringing ideas to the world of wanting to articulate them in a way that is powerful and practical and evidence-based. So that's always where I want my nexus of focus to be. You have a track record of doing all of the above, so my fear is at a zero. Ah, so what are some of the emotions you're experiencing right now? I'm excited to learn about a bunch of things that I'm puzzled by. I'm curious about some things that I know you'll have clarity on. 
And I am, I'm looking forward to debating a couple of things too, that I think we have common values, but different perspectives on. Yeah, let's do it. I think emotional skills are often denigrated. We call them soft skills. What's the problem with that? Well, you're absolutely correct. There's a long history of emotions being seen as soft skills, as pushed to the sidelines. And we see this history of emotions actually arising historically, even dating back to Victorian times, where what was brought into our educational system were aspects like mathematics and the hard sciences. And those were traditionally offered to men. And then what was not seen as being something that was taught and that became associated with a feminization were emotional skills and emotional capacities, amongst other things. And I think that the impact of this is far-reaching. Firstly, this is a skill set that can be learned, and yet one of the greatest tragedies is that it is not taught in a rigorous way in schools. Uh, Secondly, it's impacted on our well-being in society at large, because these are skills that interface with a changing world. And if we do not have the ability to navigate the emotions that come up for us, we are going to struggle to adapt and to have the kind of flexibility we need. You and I are both passionate about emotion regulation as a vital skill. I think a lot of people struggle with regulating the kind of fear or anxiety that you just described a moment ago with sadness, with anger, with grief. What do we know about the ineffective strategies for managing unpleasant emotions? Well, let's step back a little bit because part of the denigration of emotions has been the idea that flows through all of psychology and into society at large, which is that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad. Some emotions are so-called positive and some emotions are so-called negative. And when you come to a categorization of emotions with an inherent judgment about those emotions, what it can lead to is default strategies that are ineffective. So for example, if you've grown up in a family in which when you said you have a parent who with wonderful intentions says something to you like, I know you said, but I'll bake cupcakes with you and everything will be fine. What that parent might be communicating is that sadness is to be feared. And instead, what we do is we need to be so-called happy. And what this leads to is very often a lifetime of not navigating our emotions in ways that are effective. So two of the most common ineffective strategies that I find when it comes to emotion regulation are firstly emotion suppression. Emotion suppression is where you have this idea that I'm feeling sad, but I shouldn't be sad because a lot of people have it worse than me or I should just be grateful. And so what we do is bottling those emotions. And often we do this with really good intentions because we're trying to get through our day. We're trying to problem solve about the thing in front of us. But what we know is that a default tendency to view these emotions as bad and therefore to suppress or push them aside has a real impact on our long-term well-being. It has an impact on our ability to develop the skills that help us to deal with the world as it actually is. Not as we wish it to be, but it actually is, which is a world that is fragile, in which our hearts will be broken, 
and in which things aren't going to go in the way that we always want. We also know that when people have a default tendency to suppress difficult emotions, it impacts on their relationships. So Adam, you asked what are the what are the typical ones that I see? The one is the suppression. Uh, a lot of people do the opposite. So a lot of people with very, very good intentions, they start brooding on their emotions. They start ruminating on their emotions. Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? This is terrible. This is awful. And when we do this, there's no space between us and our response. And you're so consumed by the difficult emotion that you are not actually present to the context that is right in front of you and able to deal with it effectively. And then what we can sometimes do with our brooding of difficult emotions is we co-brood. So we get together with our best friend or we connect with a whole lot of people on social media, our echo chamber, and we all talk about how things are terrible. But what we are not doing is we are not moving towards understanding those emotions with greater levels of dimensionality and we aren't thinking about who we want to be in the world and how we want to bring ourselves with wisdom to the world. This reminds me of the research by Maya Tamir and colleagues, where they show that when you have unpleasant emotions, if you judge them negatively, that actually predicts having worse well-being than if you just accept them as a normal part of life and say, this feels bad, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for me. And I, I remember first reading that research and thinking, at heart, I'm a functional theorist when it comes to emotions. Mm -hmm. I think an emotion may be unpleasant, but it can still serve a purpose. And for me, that purpose is often that it's a teachable moment. So when I feel regret, I try to look at that as a, a seminar on making a wiser decision next time. When I feel guilty, I think, all right, that's a class on doing the right thing. When I'm bored, all right, I'm going to get a lesson here on where my intrinsic motivation doesn't lie and and how I might be able to find flow in the future. If I'm disappointed, I've just gotten a tutorial on how to prepare better or persevere more effectively. And in the rare circumstances where I get angry, I feel like I've just gone through a crash course on learning to set boundaries and stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That idea of emotions as teachable moments for me is an alternative to the judgment that would lead me to either suppress or ruminate. I guess, how do you react to that as a strategy? And what would you advise doing differently? So I think that's a really important strategy. A core part of my work is this movement beyond the idea that emotions are good or bad, and really a movement towards uh, compassion, curiosity, and acceptance. Because when we bring a level of compassion to ourselves that allows us to be gentle with ourselves rather than judgmental. When we bring a level of curiosity, we're saying, I'm experiencing this difficult emotion, but tough emotions signpost our needs and our values. And so what you're describing when you talk about a teachable moment is that these tough emotions are signposting. There's something that we care about here. There's a value that's being abrogated or something that is really important to us that is hindering us. You know, when we talk about the idea that emotions are not necessarily inherently good or bad, this, this makes me think immediately of your profound work on forced positivity. Talk to me about that and sort of the problems that you've seen with the pressure to always be in a good mood and what, what that says about people, about our culture, and what we should be doing instead. When I was in my teens, my 
father, who was 42 at the time, died of uh, colon cancer. And I remember him dying on a Friday, going to school on the Monday, because my mom wanted to keep things normal, and she was in her own grief. And I remember going to school, and the entire class, for months after that, avoided talking about fathers in my presence, because there was this idea that it would somehow make me upset. So I started to experience a massive avoidance around difficult emotions. And when people started to say to me, how are you doing? I would say, I'm doing fine. I was praised for being strong. I didn't drop a single grade. And I almost started to believe that the world really valued the idea of me being positive as a proxy for me coping well. Whereas, Adam, in truth, I was 15 years old, grieving my dad. I became bulimic. I was unable to bear the weight of my grief. My mother was raising three children. The creditors were knocking. But every day I would go to school and I would have this smile on my face. And one day there was a teacher who handed out these blank notebooks to the class and she said, write tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And it was the most extraordinary invitation by this individual who, instead of saying, just be positive, everyone's got to be positive, good vibes only, was someone who was <laughs> saying, you know, I see you. I know that that's not your emotional truth. She knew what I was going through. And she invited me into this correspondence. And so I started to experience the profound healing and resilience that came through moving to difficult emotions. So this is why I speak so passionately about this idea. I mean, I could talk about other experiences of so-called toxic positivity. I think the word toxic is often overused. I call it the tyranny of positivity. This is, at its core, an avoidant coping strategy. It is avoidant of the reality that is in front of you. And the same is experienced when we, in our day-to-day -day lives, live in a culture that tells us good vibes only, just be positive. This is not making us more resilient. This is not helping us to have tough conversations, to understand shared values. When we avoid difficult emotions, we stay in a world of sometimes lack of wisdom and a lack of learning because we are unable to go to the discomfort of a real challenging conversation. When we tell people just to be positive, what we are actually saying to them is, my comfort is more important than your reality. That is so powerful and so profound. It sounds like that's what your classmates were doing to you when you were a teenager. That's, that's what my classmates were doing to me. That's what people were doing to my father when he was dying, where they said to him, if you just have faith that you will be okay, if you just think positive, then you'll be fine. And if thinking positive cured cancer, the world would be a very different place. Now, that doesn't mean that our 
attitudes don't matter, it doesn't mean that we can't be optimistic. And one of the things that I talk about very often in my work is the difference between forced false positivity versus optimism. Optimism is born of a willingness to show up to the reality. It is born of a belief that the future can be better. But optimism is also born of a willingness to put in the work to create that future versus just a forced, false, just be positive mantra. I read some evidence recently that speaks to this. It was a meta-analysis, 60-some studies, a couple hundred thousand people looking at the relationship between pessimism and optimism and health and well-being and showing that if you look at the spectrum, and I, I think this really reinforces your point, if you look at the spectrum from pessimism to optimism, the relationship between those beliefs and attitudes and your health and well-being is very small. So we shouldn't overstate it. But also... Health is predicted better by the absence of pessimism than the presence of op optimism. In other words, not being pessimistic was, was more important than being extremely optimistic. And what I took away from that evidence was <laughs> you don't always have to look on the bright side, but you do want to be shielded from the dark side. Because at, at some point, if you are always expecting the worst, then you may not do some of the things that are health-promoting. Um, you become fatalistic. Yes, this connects a lot with uh, Becca Levy's work on these kind of self-stereotypes that, yeah, that we have on aging. If you think that things are going to get worse as you age, that pessimism, then you probably aren't going to take care of yourself. If you believe that something is inevitable, then you aren't going to be taking the steps that actually lead or could lead to a different outcome. So I think that's a really, really important a synergy between these pieces of work. So can I can I then, instead of defining myself as a pessimist or an optimist, can I just say I'm a non-pessimist? Is that fair? I love it. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> I'm also a non-pessimist. Yes. Yeah, I like that better than realist because I, I feel like whenever people say, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I'm a realist, they're saying, look, I see the world objectively. No, we, we all had, have flawed views of the world. We all have filters. Some of them are rose-colored. Some of them are dark. But at the end of the day, avoiding pessimism to me seems to be uh, a great way to avoid a self-fulfilling prophecy or a vicious cycle. Yes, yes. I love that. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey, Rethinking listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. Let's, let's do the lightning round. What's a belief about emotions that you've rethought in the last few years? This idea that, that we have this absolute inbuilt experience around anger that is universal across cultures. That's something that I'm rethinking a little bit around emotions. G- given that you've highlighted that there's often value in learning from negative emotions or unpleasant emotions, what do you think is the most underrated unpleasant emotion that people dismiss or ignore or suppress too much but actually deserves more attention? I think guilt. It's easy to talk about anger. It's easy to talk about some of these in-your-face kind of emotions. But I think guilt, it's often a very subtle cue that there's dissonance between yourself and your values. And we, we can have guilt in the world around us, but we can also have guilt towards ourselves about our feelings. And And I often think that one way to navigate this is this idea of continuity of the self, that all of us have a little five-year-old and that five-year-old is tapping you on the heart and is saying, see me, see me, see me. What is the five-year-old telling you about these subtle needs where you might feel guilty? And then also when we think about an aged version of ourselves, you know, someone who's 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years older, what is that older version of yourself advising you to do? And I think that that often what that allows us to connect with is experiences of guilt and dissonance around ourselves, our needs and our values in ways that have a broad perspective and allow us to step forward more productively. That's so interesting you say that. Guilt is is also my top pick. Guilt has so many pro-social effects. Yes. It leads us to right wrongs. It leads us to reach out to help other people. And I think to your point, it's not only a signal that we might have let someone we care about down. Sometimes it tells us we're letting ourselves down. Yes. Yes. Guilt is one of the most powerful emotions of social experience and social connection. It's It's what keeps us grounded in a sense of moral clarity. I remember years ago, Amy Resneski and I were, were doing some research on overconfidence and the risk that when you have very high self-esteem and self-efficacy, that you get complacent. And we found that that was only true for people who didn't anticipate a lot of guilt and that, that people who did worry a lot about letting others down, they were less prone to the risks of overconfidence and they actually stepped up to contribute more, which, which I thought was you know, kind of encouraging. Yeah, it's such a fascinating subtlety about this. Again, I feel like such a nerd when I talk about, oh, you know, I can wax lyrical about guilt for 10 minutes, but but it is such an important emotion. Well, you've come to the right place. Psychology nerds unite <laughs> here on Rethinking. Uh, okay, what is a favorite emotion word you have in another language that doesn't exist in English? Oh, I'm going to give you two very quick ones. The first is the word scam, S-K-A-A-M. It's a it's an Afrikaans word, and it's a very beautiful word because scam is a combination of being embarrassed, but in a very sheepish way. So there's there's a there's a very particular nuance around the word scam. It's like I'm embarrassed, but it's not a big red faced embarrassment. 
There's something very sheepish about it. And then the other word that I love, which is the word that my husband created just for me, is he says to me that I indignate as a verb. And (laughs) (laughs) indignating is when you step into indignation. And you know how we talk about love being a verb? He used to say to me, you're indignating, meaning that I was stuck in my indignation and was unable to move beyond it. What's a question you have for me? What is an emotion that you've been experiencing more of, of late? And what is that signposting for you? It's definitely empathic distress. Mm-hmm. I, I just wrote an article about it, what used to get called compassion fatigue, the sense that you know, it, it was supposed to be, it hurts to, to be exposed to people who are hurting. Well, no, as you know, Susan, it's actually seeing other people hurting, but feeling unable to help. And I've felt more of that helplessness over the past few months than, than probably certainly since the early days of the pandemic, but maybe even before that. I think it just seems like there are so many terrible things happening in the world. Yeah. And it's beyond my power to be able to stop them or change them or help the, all the people I care about through them. And that's been really hard as somebody who cares a lot about um, about being helpful and caring for people in my life. Uh, that's definitely been the, the emotion that I've been grappling with the most is I wish I could do more. I think so many people are experiencing in different ways with everything going on in the world, this like just profound sense of distance between what one wants to do and what one can do. And I think it's such a powerful exploration. I often get asked this this question in relation to when we think about emotion regulation and we think about empathy and compassion, how we can actually protect ourselves. I think it's really important. Are you going to tell me how? Because I could definitely use your expert advice. Well, so... What do I do, Susan Day? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to give you advice, but what I am going to say is this that often when people talk about compassion fatigue, they often are asking the question in relation to the fact that they're experiencing a lot of empathy or compassion, and they are also starting to experience burnout and low levels of well-being. And so the question is often, well, how can I navigate this effectively? So what people are often doing is they're trying to turn the dial on their empathy or their compassion in order to protect their well-being. They try to suppress those things in themselves or they create distance. And actually what we know is when you do this, you actually exacerbate the likelihood that you will have burnout because what you're doing is you're becoming more and more disconnected from other people, more and more disconnected from your values. And we as human beings actually have a generative social life force that happens through connection with others. So when we turn the dial down on our empathy and compassion, not only are we robbing the world of something that it needs, but we're actually robbing ourselves of the ability to move forward in ways that are values congruent. And emotion regulation is around, for example, asking ourselves things like, What is in my sphere of influence and what isn't? Are there boundaries that I can be putting in place 
that will help me to navigate the situation more effectively. We can ask questions like, I'm saying that I'm angry at the world because I feel so compassionate. But what am I feeling beyond anger? You know, what is the nuance of what's actually going on? And when we have greater levels of granularity around our emotions and we feel disappointed or we feel unsupported, as an example, instead of anger, what it actually does is it allows us to move forward and get the kind of help and support that we need. You can have, on the one hand, very high levels of empathy and compassion, and you can simultaneously have very high levels of emotion regulation and these emotion regulation capacities, and you will be protected in your well-being and you will be protected from burnout. Well, that definitely resonates. It helps to explain why one of the most helpful things that I've done for my own sense of my helpfulness in the last few months is to think about where can I make a unique contribution. It's beautiful. Um, in other words, are there are there people that others aren't helping where I can add value? Or do I have knowledge and expertise as a psychologist that might help people make sense of these feelings? And that that's actually why I wrote about it. What people are often doing when they experience empathic distress is they actually have this flattened nuance and they're going online and they are almost channeling the empathic distress in ways that don't help the world. And so I think this powerful idea of thinking about where is my voice helpful? How can I make a unique contribution? And I think the most important question that every single one of us needs to be asking ourselves right now is, who do I want to be, even in the midst of this challenge and even in the midst of the social contagion that happens when we are experiencing challenges? Who do I want to be? I want to come back to your tendency to indignate. <laughs> <laughs> as you described it. it. And I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not accusing you of this, Susan, but I think that often when people become angry or righteously, righteously indignant toward others, uh, one of the things I hear them say is, you made me feel. Yes. Like, you made me feel angry. Like, you made me feel upset. Mm -hmm. You made me feel outraged. And I have an issue with the phrase, you made me feel. Are you indignating about the issue or do you just have an issue? I am. You know what? I don't judge emotions, but I do judge the way that people give up agency over their emotions. Yes. I posted about this not too long ago. And I said, a sign of emotional intelligence is abandoning the phrase, you made me feel. Mm -hmm. Because you're giving other people power over your emotions. No one can make me feel anything. To take the line misattributed to Viktor Frankl, yes. there is a space between stimulus and response. You control your behavior, but I choose my reactions, was, was my reaction. And I got a lot of love for this and some very intense hate. Of course, I'm not talking about abusive relationships here. If you're being you know, gaslit by a manipulative narcissist, uh, <laughs> that, that, that is not what we're describing. I'm saying in an everyday friendship or romantic relationship or professional collaboration, you shouldn't blame your ordinary feelings on other people. What do you think of the idea of <laughs> blaming other people for our emotions? <laughs> of course, people influence how we feel. 
Of course they do. Now, because I feel something, does that mean that I now get to blame you for my response? You made me feel is one of the most disempowering ways that we can be in the world. Essentially, what it's saying is that I am simply a constant victim of how other people feel. But at the same time, the idea that people don't influence how we feel is to deny the reality that context and others do impact on us. And in a, in a paradoxical way, saying that I am 100% responsible for every single thing that I feel is also actually disempowering because what it does is it denies the reality that we are human beings in relation to others. I love the way that you characterize that. And I guess it leads me to a couple of reactions. I, I think about my, my initial emotional reaction to somebody's behavior as a rough draft. Like if I were an artist, I would not frame that. I would keep revising it until yes. I'm at the place that I, I would like to land. And I'm afraid that people are less likely to do that revision when they claim that somebody else just caused their emotion as opposed to contributing to it. Uh, yes, I love that. I love that. And, and, I, and I think about what are some practical strategies when people are indignating or when they are fused with their emotion, like how, they, how can they start getting that space? If we think about the language that we use, when we say, I am, I am sad, I am angry, I am being undermined, what are you doing? You are showing complete linguistic fusion between yourself and your emotion. Yes. I am sad. It's almost as if, you know, the sadness is a cloud and you have become the cloud. There's no space for values or wisdom or who I want to be. And a good way of, of creating space linguistically is think about this. Instead of I am sad, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. When you notice your thoughts, your emotions and your stories for what they are, they are thoughts they are emotions, they are stories, they are not fact. What you do is you're taking the meta view. Yes. I am big enough and capacious enough to experience all of these different emotions and choose who I want to be. So you aren't the cloud, you're actually the sky. You are the sky. You are big enough to experience all of your emotions and choose who you want to be. The English language is really impoverished when it comes to helping us take this almost Buddhist perspective of just observing our emotions. I remember when I was first learning Spanish, thinking it was such an interesting distinction to have a temporary as opposed to a permanent yes. description of emotions, like to say estar as opposed to ser, to know what I felt. Like the, the literal interpretation was like, I am feeling angry right now, not I am angry. And I know in, in other languages, it's common sometimes to say, like, anger is washing over me. Yes. Uh, which is even better. So beautiful. I mean, even just with hunger in Spanish, like, it was, tengo hambre. I have hunger. Like, the, the hunger has visited upon me. It's not something that I'm internalizing as my own permanently. And that's, I think, what you're capturing here. Yes. I worry a lot about accountability being located in the wrong place. I think that when 
when people blame others for their emotions, they're focusing inward on their own mental state, as opposed to asking, what was it about the other person's actions that was unacceptable, that violated my values? And I think that it's much more reasonable to hold people accountable for their actions than the emotions they caused in me. Because if, if I tell you, I don't like the way you make me feel, there's nothing you can do about that, right? That, that's my feeling. You can't control it. Whereas if I can locate what it is about your behavior that was problematic for me, well, now you can change that. It's, it's really, really important because it takes away our power in the situation, but it also takes away our learning and our insight and our accountability. And, and the, circling back to the conversation earlier where we were talking about why these skills are so important, we cannot live in a world where transient emotions become definitional, there is a difference between feeling a feeling versus acting on the feeling. And often what we're doing is we're conflating the two. No one and no world is going to be a better place when we conflate our feelings with our actions. We own our emotions. They don't own us. It makes me think about the research that Marion Eberly led on relational attributions, where she said so many of us either blame ourselves or blame others. But really, when, when there's an unpleasant emotion in an interaction, most of the time, it's not you, it's not me, it's us. It just is. Well, Susan, I love your work on emotional agility. I think it reminds us not to treat our emotions as sacrosanct, but also not to dismiss them altogether, because they are clues to values. I've loved just hearing your take. I know we've been connecting with each other for so long, but we've never actually had the opportunity to really discuss some of these things in more detail. So thank you for allowing my nerddom. I have more nuance now around my objection to the phrase, you made me feel. You could punch me in the face and think you're going to make me feel hurt or angry. But I'm going to have a very different emotional response if you're my friend than if you're my boxing partner. No one controls what you feel, but they do influence what you feel. And it's up to you to decide how you want to feel about that. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quinn, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. And so when we look at these difficult emotions and we say, what is this emotion signposting? And I often use this shortcut, which is, you know how in social media, people often say WTF. Uh, <laughs> the language that I use around this is what the funk, F-U-N-C. In other words, what is the function of this emotion? What is it signposting to me? What is it telling me about what's important? That's a great way to <laughs> to reinterpret uh, the expletive that wants to to take over um, and hijack the the event.